Welcome to the Odontology 12-Step Podcast, brought to you by your number one source for recovery media online, broadcasting hope and healing 24-7. Come on by and see us at www.odontology12step.com. Here's your host, Robert O. Welcome back, everybody, to the Odontology 12-Step Podcast. This is your host, Robert, and we'd really like to thank you for stopping by and listening to us. We've got a great show lined up. We're going to start out in our Hope and Healing segment with a powerful story of a woman in recovery. Her name is Angie, and she really shares how down she was in the redemption that she was able to experience through applying the 12 steps to her life. So this is a really good one. And again, one of my favorite things is to hear and see examples of strong women that are in the program. So it's going to be great. And then we've also got another powerful story, and his name is Ed, and he shares about how he was able to forgive his father's murderer. So it's a really cool story. Don't want to miss that. It's extremely powerful. Beyond that, in our Recovery Today segment, we're going to talk about some 12-step myths, some things you might see online, you might hear around, and maybe you've always wondered, and it's certainly what I wondered when I was new. I would hear things like, is AA a cult? And there was a charismatic leader, the founder, Bill Wilson, and even though he was a co-founder, but nonetheless, there's a bunch of stuff out there like you need to be super religious to be an AA, and we're just going to go through all that and just break it down in very calm manner and just try to put out some accurate information to kind of counterbalance some of those more wild claims (laughs) that you see online. But speaking of the founders, we would really like to tell everybody out there about something that we've been researching and actually ask everyone's help. Uh, we have been researching here at Odontology Dr. Bob Smith, and he is one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he had something that was very unusual at the time. What I'm talking about is Dr. Bob had, well, what we consider today to be a full-sleeve tattoo. Dr. Bob's arm was covered in a giant dragon tattoo, and he had a nautical compass at the top. And we've been researching this tattoo and trying to find out what it meant. And really, the only reference point that we have is in Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers, where he's wearing like a wrestling style swimsuit, you know, one of those things that looks like a wrestling uniform. Someone comes up to him on the beach and they say, wow, Dr. Bob, that is a glorious tattoo. I didn't know you had this giant tattoo. And he basically told him, well, I was at Dartmouth and it was a long bender and I was really drunk and da, da, da. And he really didn't say much beyond that. So we've actually contacted Dartmouth and talked to some people there. And apparently there was a secret society at Dartmouth called the Dragon. So we thought we were onto something. And then when we talked to him, they said, no, Dr. Bob was not a member of this secret society called the Dragon, but he actually was a member of this other thing. And the researchers there were very nice and accommodating, but unfortunately, we weren't able to find any more information on Dr. Bob's tattoo. So if anyone out there has anything or knows anything about Dr. Bob's tattoo, please drop by odontology12step.com, send us a message on Facebook or Twitter. We would love to kind of dig more into this full-sleeve tattoo that this surgeon had back in the 19th which was very uncommon and one of the kind of neat things that I learned about Dr. Bob in studying AA history and things like that. 
But we're going to get started today with the hope and healing feature of a story of Angie. Angie is an African-American woman from Ohio, and she has a really powerful way of telling her story and conveying a strong message to the audience. We're going to pick up in Angie's story where she's struggling and she's down and out, and after years of drinking and drugs, she's just been completely decimated by addiction and alcoholism, and then she comes in. Alcoholics Anonymous and finds acceptance in that handout, the hand saying, hey, I can help you. Please, you know, let us help you. And it's one of the things about the 12-step programs that really make it unique. I know if you were to go into even some faith communities or something like that, doctor's offices, if you were completely downtrodden, you know, smelling of booze and drugs and just completely lost and disheveled, not a lot of people would be like, oh, hey, come on in. Hey, how are you doing? But with the 12-step rooms and Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and Crystal Meth Anonymous and all those programs, we all know what it's like to be there. We've all been there ourselves to one extent or another. So when someone comes in and they're just completely battered and ravaged by addiction and alcoholism, we're always there to stick our hand out and saying, I know what it's like. Come have a cup of coffee, take a seat, just listen to us. So we're going to pick up in Angie's story. She's also going to talk about her kids and some of the things that she lost in her drinking. And then we're going to play the flip side of that afterwards that shows the redemption and the things in recovery. So we'll get started. This is Angie from Ohio, starting off telling her story about coming into Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm coming out of jail long enough to stay on the streets to drink a little while, and then I go back to jail. And one day I go to jail, they give me a physical and I find out I'm pregnant. And I'm headed to the Ohio Reformatory for Women with a 7 to 25 with a child going on the inside. And I'm going to tell you something. The only thing that kept me from losing my mind was the fact that I would rub my stomach and I would tell my baby, this is it. I'm not going to do this no more. This is it. And I meant that from the bottom of my heart. I had to call my mother because the warden came to me and he said, you need to find some place for this baby to go because of the amount of time that you're doing. It'll become a ward of the state. And by this time, my parents had kicked me to the curb. They didn't want nothing to do with me. And I had to call my mother. And I said, Mama, I need y'all to come to the penitentiary and get my son. My mother said, Angie, you got a baby. I said, yes, ma'am. And I need you to come and get it. And they did just that. They didn't stop to see me. They had nothing to say to me. But they said that that child did not deserve. We'll take And they came and they got that baby. And I watched them through a slit like this. Come and get my child. And I remember y'all from the bottom of my heart, man, saying, I'm going to get my act together. And I meant that from the bottom of my heart. I meant it. When I got my freedom, my son was four years old. All the way down 71 South. That's all I could think about was my son. All I could think about. I can't wait to see my child. I can't wait to see my child. I get to the Greyhound bus station and suddenly the thought crossed my mind. If you're new in the room, it's in more about alcoholism. Suddenly the thought crossed my mind that surely one drink ain't going to hurt me. As much as I love and wanted to see my child, surely one drink ain't going to hurt me. And the next time I saw my son, he was 10 years old. See, I don't know if you know about the powerfulness of disease of alcoholism, but I know 
that when I put alcohol in my system, what happens to me? I got plenty of plans. I'm meant to go see my child, but what do I say to my family? What do I say to the people that's got my child? I was drinking. That wouldn't fly. So you know what I did? I did what any good alcoholic would do. I act like it didn't exist. And I kept up drinking. And I'm going back and forth to the penitentiary. I need to tell you that by the time I got done with my last penitentiary bit, they sat me at the parole board and they told me that I was institutionalized. They said, you will die in an institution, Angie. But thank you for Alcoholics Anonymous. Because you guys told me differently. You said if you do what we do, you can get what we got. You didn't care whether I had been in the penitentiary. You stuck with that tradition that said the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And if you got the old transcript, it says an honest desire to stop drinking. And that's what I had. So I get out of jail. They let me out one time. And I get pregnant again. And I need to tell you that I drank alcohol through my whole entire pregnancy. I didn't have one day of prenatal care with my daughter. And I'm not proud of that, but that's what alcoholism did to me. I drank through my whole pregnancy. But I knew I was going to give her up for adoption because I couldn't take care of her. And when I got sober, the biggest lie I told my sponsor was that I gave my daughter up so that she could have a better life. That is not true. I gave my daughter up because I knew that I could not continue to live the lifestyle I was living if she was with me. Alcohol had became my master, and that's all that mattered. So I meet this couple. See, I'm a believer in angels. So I meet this couple who say they open up a restaurant. They're opening up a restaurant in Bloomington, Indiana, and asked me if I wanted to go. I said, I'm giving my baby up for adoption. And they said, you couldn't work at our restaurant. And my daughter was born. The family was picked. And I went into labor, and this couple went into the labor and delivery room. They were there with me, and they held my hand as I gave birth to my daughter. And when you give a child up for adoption, they come and they throw this black tarp over you when the baby's about to come. And they come and they take my baby, and they take her to the nursery, and they take me to medical. And I'm laying there, and the phone rings, and it's my parents. They said, don't you get that baby up. We'll take her. You just bring her home. So I got on the Greyhound bus with my daughter. And I said, God, please, just don't let her cry. Because I didn't know nothing about babies, y'all. I said, God, just don't let her cry. And I held that baby on the Greyhound bus. And she didn't make one sound. We got to the Greyhound bus station and my parents were there. And my father got out of that pickup truck and he came over and he took my little girl out of my arms and he said, Angie, we got it from here. And I said, what am I supposed to do? And they said, we don't know what you're supposed to do, baby. But she didn't ask for this. And they took my daughter and they drove off. And from that, that point on, I drank like there was no tomorrow. I drank. And you know what? I couldn't, I couldn't get any sobriety. I just couldn't get sober because it was just too much to bear. I don't know if you understand that, but it was just too much to bear to be sober. I can't think. I don't want to feel. I don't want to do anything. And that's what I did. I didn't want to feel. I'm, drink, I'm living at this 
house, <laughs> this boarding house in Cincinnati on the banks of the Ohio River. So I've been reduced to all of this. I done had it all, y'all, and I ain't had nothing. So I'm up at this bar on Vine Street. Somebody asked me to go get high. I go with them. We drink it. They pull out some dope to shoot it into my arms, and it was ice water. And they shot ice water into my veins. I left that place, and I walked 17 blocks down to this place, saying to God, I don't want to die like this. And I felt like I was going to die. And I said, God, I don't want to die like this. I don't want my family to find me like this. I'm a believer in angels. Because I got to that place and it was a little blind woman standing there. And she said to me, you don't have to keep living like that. And I said, I'm sick and I need some help. And she said, she went up to my room with me and she put a rag on my head and she began to tell me her story. Tired of drowning in countless speaker tapes, searching for the right one? Come on by our website, www.odontology12step.com, where quality is our mission. We personally listen to and approve of every single speaker tape we post. This is what makes Odontology 12-Step Recovery Media stand out. If you listen to one of our speakers, we can assure you it is entertaining, easy to listen to, and carries a strong message of recovery and hope. Our site is the perfect way to enhance your recovery by listening to only the best 12-step speakers and reading our amazing recovery blog. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is the number one recovery channel on the platform with over 12 million views. www.odontology12step.com Broadcasting hope and healing 24-7. She didn't talk about how much she drank. But she talked about how she felt as a result of her drinking. And I'll tell you what, she asked me to go someplace with her. And if you would have told me it would have made me feel better, I would have went with anybody. And she took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. She took me to my first meeting. And I must tell you that I have not seen that woman since that meeting. Never saw her again. But she took me to my first meeting. So we pull up in, in front of this clubhouse. It's about 200 Harleys parked out front. All these white people with white cups. And I was like, well, it looked like it's going to be a, a pretty nice party, I guess. And I started walking up this walk. And people started reaching out their hands. They said, welcome. Welcome. My name is so-and-so. Welcome. My name is so-and-so. And I said, well, good. At least they friendly. And I get to the top of the step, and this big biker dude grabs me, and he goes, Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Squirrel. <laughs> and I was like, Squirrel, man, you might have to put me down, bruh. <laughs> and why they name your big butt Squirrel? And then the thought came to me, Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, Oh, sister, you have hit an all-time low. You are in Alcoholics Anonymous. That is so incredible to hear that. And one of the things about AA and the 12-step meetings is when you go in there and you're just completely destroyed, sometimes the craziest things happen. I remember when I was completely down and out and I was just so low some people in the corner of the room, they were joking around, and I don't even know, one guy was like playing air guitar or something, and everybody was laughing. And I was at one of the lowest points in my life, and all these people were laughing, and 
I couldn't help it. I mean, this guy was acting crazy and doing an air guitar. And even though I was, frankly, on the edge of ending my own life, I was suddenly caught up in this laughter of these people. And it was a really cool experience. So I can relate to Angie coming in and and for the first time in a long time, kind of finding something to relate to, finding people that were like her. And that's a really freeing thing for me to know that the people that are in the 12-step programs are like me. Because for the longest time when I was out there, I felt so alone. I felt like I was the only one that had these issues, and I just felt so different. And then when I came into the program and the rooms of the 12-step fellowships, I realized that, no, I wasn't alone, and there were other people there. And that's kind of where my recovery journey began, and so many have begun from that simple place of just coming into the rooms and just identifying with the people in there. So in this next clip, Angie's going to talk about the recovery and the redemption that she was able to find, some of the things that happened in her life as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous and the steps. So we'll let Angie take it away from here. Three years sober, my family asked me to stay out of my kid's life and let them have the same kind of life that I had. And for the first time in my life, I made a decision that was selfless. I said, okay, I won't come around. But if you got kids and you love them like I did, I had to see my kids. And I would drive to that soccer field and I would have a baseball hat on and sunglasses and I'd be sitting way in the corner. But I'd watch them. And I'd be at my son's basketball games, way up in the bleachers with a baseball hat and sunglasses on, but I had to see them. I watched my daughter go to prom from up the street, sit looking out of a car. I watched her go to prom, and she came out of there, and she got in that limo, and I thought to myself, she is beautiful, man. Man, she look like me, man. She, she's fine. And on my daughter's 18th birthday, man, she called me, and she said, I want to see you. And I went and I picked her up, and we went to the mall. And she spent all my money. She spent every dime I had. And then I realized after I talked to my sponsor that I should be a little more specific in my prayers. Say that I want to see my kids and I'd like to have a little change in my pocket afterwards. And I'm going to tell you something. This is the amazing things about kids, man. Because I went and picked her up, we went to the mall, and on the way home, man, she had her head on my shoulder. And she said, Angie, you don't drink no more. I said, no, baby. I don't drink no more. And she said, you doing all right? And I said, I'm doing good. I said, I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm just working on staying sober one day at a time. And she said, well, I don't want to create no problems between you and the family. But I wanted to see you. And I was able to make amends to my daughter and tell her every single day that I thought about her and that I got this thing called alcoholism that as much as I love her it won't let me get to her as much as I love her oh yeah and she's dating a white guy (laughs) I don't care who you are you hear that news you got something to say about it but he's a good guy he's a good guy he's a good guy and I got a son who's in prison who's in jail as we speak and I thank God for the program of Al-Anon. Because every day I want to go get my baby out of jail. 
But my sponsor said, you can't go get him, Angie. You know why? Because you'd be going to get him to make yourself feel better. And that's what, that ain't what this is about. And so you know what? Thank God for the people with Alcoholics Anonymous that take AA to jail. Because my son wrote me, and he going to meetings, man. You know? He doing his thing. You know what I'm saying? I'm just grateful to be sober, y'all. I'm grateful that the committee would ask me to come here and do something like this. I couldn't even read when I got to AA, y'all. Thank God for the 530 Big Book meeting. Thank God for the members of Alcoholics Anonymous that when I sat in meetings and everybody else was getting irritated because I couldn't say words right, thank God for the trusted servants who told me what the word meant and spelled it for me. And I got my GED in sobriety. And then I got, let me tell you something, I got my GED, December 7, 1999, and when that thing came in the mail, man, I grabbed it and I just fell back on the bed and I said, I'm going to college. I'm going to college, man. I remember I took that thing and I ran up to the University of Cincinnati and I was like, I want to go, I want to go to college. And they said, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. And about this time, they uh, had incorporated the School of Addiction Studies into the University of Cincinnati, and I'm now certified with the Liberal Arts and Social Sciences in Addiction Studies. Man, God has been so good to me, y'all. God has been so good to me. And I just have to say, man, if you're doing the room, man, stay here. In spite of what your mind tells you, stay here. Hook up with some people who can keep you accountable. Thank God for my friends at AA, man. Thank God, thank God for the friends that I met all across the country. After I spoke at the International Convention AA, my whole life changed, y'all. And I got to go places, and I still get to go places that I only saw in magazines. Carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. Absolutely incredible. I love that story. She's such an engaging speaker. You can check her out on our YouTube channel. Just go to our YouTube channel and then type in Angie in the search bar. You can also stop by odontology12step.com. And if you like what you hear, drop us a line. You can actually enter your email address into the subscribe newsletter button, and we can send you updates and information about the podcast. And if you want to tape, you know, you can talk with us about that there. So it's a really cool place to get engaged. But I love that story. Angie is absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. Every time I hear it, I'm just absolutely inspired. So that is Angie's story. And now we're going to kind of move to another story, a story of forgiveness. But before we get into that powerful forgiveness, we're going to have Ed kind of start from that same place that Angie was at. Kind of what we were talking about earlier in the show where you come into these programs and you're just beaten down and you're not feeling like yourself and the alcoholism and addiction has maybe got a hold of you for so long, you don't even remember what it's like to feel normal again. Well, Ed it kind of starts his story off in this clip we're going to play, how he was completely disheveled. He had let his 
personal hygiene go out the window, and he was living on the streets, engaged in violent acts. And one of the things about Ed is he was six foot ten, so you can imagine the kind of fights that he was in and all the crazy stuff that happened to him. But one of the things when you saw him sober, he was an absolutely gentle giant. He is one inspirational person, and unfortunately, he's passed away, but his legacy still lives on. His legacy of recovery, love, and service still lives on. But in this first clip, Ed's going to talk about how when he went into that first AA meeting and kind of an experience he had where one person there really extended the hand of help to him, and he talks about how important it was to him for this one person to show him that he was welcome. So we're going to let Ed start it off from here. Walked into that room, and the most amazing thing happened. I walked in, somebody looked me directly in the eye, stuck out their hand, a guy by the name of John, saying, uh, my name's John, what's your name? I said, Ed. <laughs> I had my look. You know, you got to have your look. He said, well, welcome, Ed. One cup of coffee? Come on in. And he was very kind to me. And he sat me down. I was there a couple weeks, and I nudged somebody. I said, these people are awful nice. What do they want from me? And he said, what do you got that anybody would want? <laughs> well, you got a point there. I'd never quite thought about it like that. <laughs> but the only thing they talked about, and to this day at that meeting, you will only hear Alcoholics Anonymous in that meeting. You will only hear Alcoholics Anonymous in that meeting. And I am so grateful for that. And I knew I had to keep busy. I didn't, sponsorship wasn't real big back then. Uh, it was known a little bit, but we're talking 35 years ago in the Midwest. And yeah, there were sponsors around, but it wasn't a big deal, you know, it was just. And I, I wouldn't ask anybody anyway, because I certainly didn't think I was worth anybody's time, you know. And, uh, but I knew God gave me the knowledge instinctively to keep busy, and I kept busy. Man, I was busy. And you know, when you cold detox, it was so much fun. And there was a lot of shakers. You know, you don't see many shakers anymore. Any other shakers here? Okay, good. Yeah, I was a shaker, man. <laughs> How you doing, Ed? Oh, good. How you doing, man? Cup of coffee? No, thanks. Cup chips my teeth. Piece of cake? No, can't have sharp objects. And I was just quick in my arms. And, and I just had two rules. They were real simple. Don't come up behind me and don't touch me. You know? <laughs> simple rules. Simple. And uh, a little Harry in my group didn't know my rules. And thank God he didn't. Because Harry was a coffee pourer. And he'd come up behind me and he'd put his hand right here. And he'd pour that coffee and there'd be a peace come over me like I'd never known before. The madness for the first time in my life stopped. I could breathe. And momentarily I knew everything was going to be okay. I don't know why. I just knew it was. And Harry'd keep that hand there and pour that coffee real slow. And then he'd go and as soon as he pulled that hand away it'd start again. I'd drink that coffee just as quick as I could. So Harry'd come by put his hand on me. That loving healing hand of God. And told me it's okay. And believe me, when I come here, I'm not saying it to be dramatic. I wasn't somebody you'd want to touch or even sit by. I did not care about personal cleanliness at all. That had gone out the window years ago. And the only regret I have about that is I never got to tell Harry, Harry, thank you. Thanks for just touching me, man. Touch is so important. 
really is. One of the things I really like about that clip is how Ed shows so much emotion and so much appreciation for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and kind of the principles behind it. You can see when he tells that story how touched he was by that person that just did the simple thing of walking up to him and pouring some coffee. For me, it's important to remember that when I'm in meetings or when I'm talking to someone, you never know what that one thing can be that can completely change their life. And it's also important for me to carry myself in a way where I'm acting like a good example all the time because you never know who's watching. So right there when Ed's describing just the simple coffee pouring and how he felt so isolated, so alone, and this one person just did something so simple, had a transformative effect on his life to where 30, 40 years later, he's still recalling that. And you can see the real emotion that comes out. So in this next clip, it's also going to be emotional, but it's really one of the most powerful stories that we've got in our library. You can go find this tape at www.odontology12step.com under Ed M. Forgiveness. And the reason why it's titled that is that Ed forgives the person that murdered his father. So right there, you're like, whoa, that's, that's a lot. I don't know if I would be able to do that. I don't know many people that would be able to have that amount of grace and compassion. So when you're hearing Ed share this story, it's important to remember that he's coming from a place of love and recovery. And you know that if he was still drinking and using, that he would not have this same reaction to his father's murderer. One of the things in the tape that's important to note is that in Ed, in sobriety, he worked for the Harlem Globetrotters for quite a while, but then later on, he became an ordained minister. So if you have any preconceived ideas or conceptions about church or religion or anything like that, just kind of set them aside and just let the power of this moment kind of take over. It's an extremely powerful and incredible and inspirational story. So we'll let you hear it for yourself. Ed M's going to tell you how he was able to forgive the person that murdered his father. Before I left that church, shortly before I left that church, I'll close on this. Before I left that church, I was uh, preaching on forgiveness one night. And I was giving them heaven because they'd had enough of the other crap. And uh, right in the middle of that sermon, I stopped and I realized I was being hypocritical because it was on the passage of don't come to my altar if you've got a problem with one of the brothers out there. Don't. You know, go make that right before you come here. And I was right in the middle of the sermon, and I realized I had never told the guys who killed my father that they were forgiven. Now, you want to know how well AA works, and you aren't going to believe this, because I hardly believe it. I could not remember the names of the guys that killed my father. You kidding me? Couldn't remember them. But I knew that I had never told them that they'd been forgiven for a long time. And in my opinion... And amend, and when you forgive somebody, it's worthless if you haven't told them. It's just self-serving. Man. And I stopped right in the middle of the sermon and said, I'll search them out and I'll find Two and a half weeks later, one of these guys' sins was overturned. And the press came to me. I'm loved way in my community where I'm at because of the way you taught me to live and behave. And the press came and the press was all over me. And they said, well, this guy, they're going to let him go home. What do you think? And I said, well, let him go home. Let him, let him start fresh. They said, well, he went in there where he's 17. He don't know how to work. Where's he going to live? Where's he going to get clothes? They say, he can come live with me. I'll take care of it. And people couldn't understand that. They've obviously never been to AA. 
where you welcomed me. How can I say no to him? What's the difference? Seconds and inches, amount of alcohol, situation? How dare I? How dare I not welcome him into my life? That story went all over the world. All over the world. It's on the front page of the New York Times, I understand. The Los Angeles Times. When Oprah's calling me, 48 Hours is calling me, 2020's calling me. Well, what are you doing? I said, well, it's called Step 8 and 9. And if you really work at Step 8, you know. <laughs> I remember I always loved Oprah. I like Oprah. And her producer called me and said, uh, we'd like you to be on the show. And I said, oh, that'd be cool. I'd like that. And they said, this coming Friday, I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm speaking in Orlando at a central, uh, central office anniversary. And they said, yeah, this is the Oprah show. And I said, it's their anniversary. <laughs> you know? Because you taught me here to do what's right and do the commitment you made first, regardless of what comes up. And I'm not letting my friends down there that have been waiting two years for me to come and talk. I would have loved to have done that. And they just thought I was nuts. They haven't called me back either. <laughs> and that's just fine. Two and a half weeks later, I found myself walking down a prison hall of a prison that I'd swore I'd never step foot in again. And I walked in and uh, I saw the guy that I hadn't seen in 28 years. Last time I saw him, he was sitting in a courtroom with a smirk and an attitude on his face. And I said, give me five minutes with him and we don't need this trial. And I saw myself doing what you taught me to do, stick it out this big old paw and say, hi, my name's Reverend Ed Mutum. And I'm here to tell you that I, I love you and I forgive you. And I only have one thing to ask of you. And he said, what's that? And I said, if there's ever anything I can do in your life to make it better, allow me to do that. And he looked into this old timer's eyes and he knew I wasn't kidding. There was no fun and games here, man. It's time to heal. And I stayed for two and a half hours. And the oddest thing is we became friends. We ended that meeting with the state attorney general being there, the ward being there, because this was a big deal. And we all held hands and cried and said the Lord's Prayer. How appropriate. And sure enough, uh, they were going to retry him, and I went down to my friend, the county attorney, and I said, please, don't retry him. Let him plead to second degree or something. Let him come home. He's been in there 30 years. It's of no use for him to stay there anymore. And they said, uh, Eddie's just conning you. I said, no, he don't even know I'm here. He don't even know I come down to talk to you. He is my friend. Please help me save my friend. And he listened. He let him plead a second-degree murder. And at the courtroom that day, Sherman turned around and apologized to everybody in there. He said, I don't even know I'm, who I'm apologizing to. But please, please, please forgive me. I have no defense for what I did. I didn't learn that in seminary. I learned that in rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. About a year and a half later, the Iowa State Correctional Facility called me up and said, Mr. Mutum, Sherman's ready to be released and you're the only one we'll let him go to. Because there was a lot of controversy about him coming home. Can you imagine that? The son of a murder victim is the only person they'll let him go to. And I went up and I picked him up and I brought him home. And he was in a halfway house for a while and that didn't work out too well. And uh, he went back away, and then he called me, and he said, uh, Ed, uh, a year and a half later, he said, uh, I'm coming home again. Do you think I could find a place? I said, you can come and live with me. That was the deal. 
And he came home, and I got him an apartment, and I got him some nice clothes. And got him a few bucks, and we went out and got him a job. And he fell in love, and I haven't seen him since. <laughs> End of a beautiful story, as far as I'm concerned. But did I do that because I'm Mr. Wonderful? No. I'm doing it because you were that kind to me. In the prayer we'll say, hopefully at the end of this meeting, there's a little line in there that says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I hope if you're carrying any burdens or any anger or any resentment during the prayer today, you just leave it here. And after you're done with the session this morning, that you go out of here with a cleaner heart than you've ever had, in a better life than you've ever had, and a sense of peace. Thank you, buddy. And a sense of peace like you've never known. I try to make it my job that wherever I go to leave a piece of my soul with you because that's all I got of any value. Hope I've done that this morning. I feel I have. I want to thank Bart for the honor and the privilege of being here. And I want to thank you and all your hard work for putting this together. And all of you who have come out here this morning. God bless you and keep you. Thank you. What an incredibly moving story by Ed. I just absolutely love the way he tells that story. And it's such a powerful testament to the transformational changes that take place in recovery. But anyway, we're going to go ahead and get into our Recovery Today segment. Uh, This one's going to be about 12-step myths, some of those things that you hear around, and we're going to kind of break those down. There's a really good article by um, one of our friends at CounselingRecovery.com. We're going to bring that up and just kind of explore the topic of 12-step myths, so stay tuned. Never be alone on your road to recovery with the Odontology app for Apple and Android devices. Odontology has earned its large following by providing only the best recovery material available, and now you can get it instantly all in one place. There's over 100 hours of incredible content to keep you motivated and inspired in your recovery journey. Search Odontology in the Apple or Google Play Store and download the Odontology app. Welcome back to the Odontology 12-Step Podcast, and today we're going to be getting into a segment called 12-Step Myths, and this comes from our good friend Michelle Ferris. You can find her at counselingrecovery.com. There's tons of good stuff on her website, and it's really a wonderful resource for anybody that maybe has a family member that's struggling with addiction, if they're in recovery themselves, or if they're kind of on the edge wondering, do I need recovery? Is there something that I can find a bunch of articles that kind of answers my basic questions? So this article and website is great for just about anybody that is wondering about addiction or or alcoholism or is afflicted with it. So it's really, really good. Her article is titled 12-Step Myths. And the way we like to form this podcast is stuff that we would have wanted to hear at some point, stuff that we wondered about, but we didn't want to ask, but that we really thought would help us. So we kind of deliver a podcast just like we do a website and in our YouTube channel the way we would want to have it. So these were kind of things that I always wondered when I was new. You know, is AA a cult? There's like chanting, there's numbers, there's a basket and there's a dollar basket that comes around. So, you know, you're wondering, is this a cult? What's the deal going on? Is there Kool-Aid or is that coffee? <laughs> you know, so that's one of the, the things that I wondered. And that brings us to myth number one. It's a cult. You look around, you see people, you know, whether they have Facebook pages, YouTube channels, a lot of people are saying AA is a cult. 
And this couldn't be farther from the truth, because as she points out, a cult is defined as a religious sect generally considered to be extremist or false under authoritarian charismatic leader. And, you know, people could say, oh, well, Bill Wilson, he is a charismatic leader. And you put a dollar in the basket and the sponsors, they control the people and they do every, you know, and those are all conspiracy theories and are absolutely ridiculous. I submit to you that if Alcoholics Anonymous is a cult, it's probably the worst cult ever in the history of cults. It costs nothing. It's ran kind of by a democratic system. There's no charismatic leader, and it takes your money a dollar at a time, or if you don't have a dollar or two dollars, whatever it is, if you don't have any money, well, you don't have to put any in. So the it's a cult thing is really kind of ridiculous, and I think no one that looks at it from the standpoint of it's a cult is can really be intellectually honest and say it's a cult. There's two million members. There's no authoritarian leadership, and it's just a group of people whose primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. So it's a cult. They're going to need to come up with some more evidence other than Bill Wilson was a charismatic leader uh, and people's sponsors tell them what to do. That doesn't make it a cult. But unfortunately, it's a buzzword, and that kind of resonates with people. And people that have a confirmation bias that are already looking to kind of maybe rag on the 12-step formula and philosophy, the it's a cult thing fits out perfectly. Because for people that don't understand it, they see the, hi, I'm Rob, I'm an alcoholic, and then the choral chant, hi, Rob, going on in the background. They see that as kind of like a cult-like thing. And I get it. it. It is a little different. But once you become immersed in the culture of the 12 Steps and Alcoholics Anonymous, you realize if this is a cult, it's very poorly run. <laughs> and so myth, that brings us to myth number two that she brings up. And myth number two is it's a religious program. And kind of out of all the online stuff that I've seen, this is really where you get a lot of the most posts, videos, all sorts of things where people said, AA and the 12 Steps is a religious program. It was founded with a Christian, Judeo-Christian philosophy in mind. The steps are a process where you talk about God, and it's a religion. Well, while that might be true, that the word God is mentioned in several of the steps and all of the literature, you have to have that caveat as you understand him, because that could mean anything to anyone. Somebody's God could be the group. I know for myself, especially in early recovery, I thought these are a group of people that are able to do something that I'm not able to do. That's good enough for me. I'm going to place my trust in going to these meetings, keep talking to these people, keep trying to do the guidance and the suggestions that they're telling me to do, and maybe something good will happen. See, that was enough to get me started, get the ball rolling. I didn't have to write a St. Thomas Aquinas theological, you know, 30-page idea of my higher power. Frankly, I didn't even really have one. So Bill Wilson in the 12 and 12 talks about how the hoop we have to jump through for step two is a lot bigger than you think. So my personal experience was I love the group. I thought it was a place where people were just like me and they were healing. And I wanted what they wanted. You know, I would sit there. I would be miserable. I'd be shaking coming off from the alcohol. My hands would be shaking. I, 
you know, oh man, this, this sucks. And I would see people smiling, laughing, going out to dinner, talking, and I'd be like, well, how come I can't be happy like them? And in reality, I could. And I used them as my higher power. I had a belief, a trust, a faith that something would happen if I kept coming back and kept doing the program. And in my experience, it is what happened. Also, on the religious program angle, there are so many atheist and agnostic meetings to count. If you're in a major city, you can easily find atheist and agnostic meetings. And if you're not, you can contact your central office. There's some great online communities. AA Agnostica is one. And there are several where there are 12-step members, 12-step groups that are for, quote, free thinkers and atheists and everything like that. So if you are very against God or religion, or maybe you just think you would fit better in there, you know, those groups are very open-minded and nice people. Maybe you just think, you know what, maybe I'm just going to head over there. You know, I don't have anything against God. I'm going to, you know, I don't even have to define anything. I'm just going to head over there, check it out, see what they have to offer. I really encourage you to do so because, There's great sober alcoholics over there that if you're kind of having some reservations about the God thing or a religious program, they would be more than happy to talk to you over there. And they've got some really good groups and good people over there. So that is the second myth. And we're going to go to the third myth, which is kind of the last one in here. Myth number three, you have to be a group person. Michelle talks where she says, when I recommend 12-step groups, the response is that they don't like groups. This is very common, even for extroverts. Seeking support is a big step. You might think it won't work or you won't fit in. So Michelle is kind of talking about how her clients are saying, you know, that sounds good, but I'm not really a group person, so I don't know if I would want to check it out. Well, I was not a group person either. You know, I had in my earlier days, been to some group therapy, didn't really like it. You know, in college when they'd say, all right, you got to work with a small group, it would really be me (laughs) being shy and not wanting to interact with any of the other people and being like, oh, I'll just do all the work. You know, so I was not a quote group person. But one of the things that makes the 12-step process and the 12-step meetings easy is that when you go in there, you don't really have to bring anything. You can just sit there in a chair literally for an hour. You don't have to talk. You don't have to do anything. You can just sit there and absorb what's going on. And in my early days, that's what I really did. I sat there. I heard people talk. I realized I wanted what they had, but I never shared. I never participated in the group for the longest time. So just because you go to a 12-step meeting doesn't mean you have to talk, doesn't mean you have to Make friends doesn't mean you have to do anything other than literally sit there for an hour. So that is the third myth, and that wraps up our segment on the Myths of 12-Step Programs by Michelle Ferris. She's got a great website at www.counselingrecovery.com. It's absolutely fabulous. We're going to have some more of her stuff on the podcast. We're going to have a couple talks by her, so stay tuned and check it out, counselingrecovery.com. Thanks. 
And that will do it for episode two of the Odontology 12-Step Podcast. We'd like to thank everybody for listening. And next time, we've got a great show. We've got a very special show and something that you've never heard before. This is one of the craziest stories that I've ever heard. Uh, it's by a Narcotics Anonymous speaker. So for all you addicts out there, we've got something for you. And this is... <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it, but I guarantee you by the end of this particular talk, you're going to say, wow, I did not see that coming and I've never heard a speaker like this before. So really looking forward to that on episode three. I'd like to thank everybody and we'll see you next time. This has been the Odontology 12-Step Podcast. If you found this content helpful, please consider taking a moment to review and rate the podcast on iTunes. For more inspiration, come on by and see us at odontology12step.com, your online home for hope and healing 24-7.